Yeah, so Chris was mentioning just the awesome opportunity to be able to be a part of a body and to hear many voices. And even this opportunity I have to share an evidence of grace today is because of our body. So I was earlier in the week at Cultivate Coffee, Chris and Bethany's coffee shop, and I was working on my message for today. And I saw Erin Romano who came in. And so she, I told her that I was going to be talking today. And she goes, oh, great are you going to share about your trip that you were literally just on a couple weeks ago? And I'm like, man, that's a fantastic idea. Like, I'm glad that occurred to somebody because somehow that would have never occurred to me. And I'm really grateful because, I mean, this is an opportunity that I have because of my, this body, this community that is able to send me out. So for some of you that don't know, I'll try and give you a quick synopsis. I, uh, I'm part of an organization, or I work for an organization that is a missions, a Christian mission sending organization. But our organization does missions a little bit differently, where instead of taking Americans and sending them overseas, what we've done is we've created a program where we are actually taking American missionaries and sending them into apartment complexes right here in Phoenix that have high populations of refugees. So just real quick backstory, in Arizona, we have over 90,000 refugees resettled and over almost 70,000 of that 90,000 come from unreached people groups. So the vast majority of the refugees coming in and living in our city come from people that have 2% or less of a Christian presence in their home country. And so there's just this amazing opportunity for us, instead of sending people overseas where they're gonna have to learn language, they're gonna have to try to adapt to culture, which again, all of those things are necessary and we actually do that as well in our organization. But because of the uniqueness of our situation here in Phoenix, we have the opportunity to send people to engage those cultures right here in the Valley. And so the cool thing about that is though, is what we're doing in that is we're looking to create disciple making movements among these refugee communities so they can actually go back to their host countries as the missionaries because they know the language, they move fluidly through the culture. And so one of those individuals, one of those former refugees is now on our staff and he, through him, he has opened up doors into his home country, Myanmar. And so we go back there and what we do is we train indigenous missionaries, indigenous pastors on how to share the gospel effectively. Because one of the great things and one of the benefits of sending Americans overseas or being able to do that is because here in our country, we have access to a lot more education, a lot more theological training than they do in these countries. And so it's really important to be able to send, to take what we've been blessed with and bless those throughout the world that are so much less fortunate in that. And so that, this past trip that I was on a couple weeks ago, that's exactly what it was. We went over there and we trained, did two trainings back to back um, in different areas of the country with indigenous pastors and indigenous missionaries. And both the trainings were really amazing, but for very different reasons. The first training that we were in was a really, really hard mission field. 
every home that we visited. So what we do as part of our training is we actually train them, train the pastors and missionaries on our method, but then we go and model it for them. So the first half of the day is training. The second half of the day is us actually going and visiting a lot of the, the slums or the poorer areas that are in these communities and sharing gospel messages with them and training the pastors. And so this first field was really difficult. Most of the people were closed. And I have a story at the end of this that I'm gonna share from this first village of even the people that are open, there's just all kinds of things pressing in against them. But the really encouraging part of that first training were the missionaries and the pastors themselves where I have confidence that almost every single one of them will be able to utilize our training and will utilize it well. They were just super engaged. They were hungry for tools to be able to share the gospel more effectively and to be trained up in that. And so that was just a huge blessing to my heart. Then the second training was almost the exact opposite, where we met resistance from the majority of the missionaries and the pastors right out of the gate. Um, they really wanted to stick to a, a very traditional Western model of planning a church and then just kind of expecting people to come and fill the rows in that and not really having any kind of desire or need to go out to the community. But like I said, part of our training is doing just that. So they came along with us. And when we got into these homes, there were so many people that were just hungry for the gospel. They had maybe seen, one guy I seen, had seen the Jesus film. And so we're sitting in here and I'm sharing with him a little bit about what I'm doing there. And he goes, this, the second town was actually a resort town. So where we're visiting these, like, I mean, small 10 by 10 bamboo huts, split bamboo, just in mud and filth, if you went, Literally, if you walked five minutes down the road, you get to these huge resorts along the beach. And so this home that I'm in, this guy actually works at one of those resorts. And he stopped me and he said, you know, I just have to ask. I've worked at this resort for years and years and I see foreigners come in all the time and they just wanna spend a bunch of money and they wanna sit and relax. And I never thought that I would have a foreigner in my home. Why, why are you here? And like, I mean, if you talk about someone like serving you up a softball, like that's so amazing that I could share with him about my God who came to me when he had no need to, but just because is a true blessing. And I could point back to him that what I'm doing really isn't anything amazing. It's just something that's been modeled for me. And just like I'm being able to share with him, he could now become a model for that. And he actually came later on to a larger gathering that we were doing and he brought his sons and all of them were super engaged in that and asked questions. And I ended up, so part of our method, the way that we share the gospel is through orality, through narrative and sharing the Bible as a unified narrative and sharing the different narratives in between. And so that's what I did. So I'd already told four stories at this point. And then this family was like, well, tell me about this. Do you have a story about this? And I'm like, well, yeah, actually I do. And so then I share this story and then they're like, 
well, what about, they asked me about like King Solomon where I'm like, whoa, where did you get that? Well, yeah, sure, I can share you with a story. So we end up sitting there for a long time sharing stories with this family. And this second training, it was like that back to back. Every one of the people that went with me on the trip had someone like that. And so where we don't, we're, weren't super confident that the people we were training are actually gonna utilize it. Now we're looking at, we, we have several indigenous missionaries that we support, and now we're like, man, we've stumbled onto this great field where we feel like if we could get somebody in and working, we could really see a gospel movement within this area. So God was just so faithful to us in both of those scenarios and both of those trainings. Um, but like I said earlier, I wanted to share you, with you a story about one of the people that I met there. So Aaron, if you could put that picture up. And so sorry, I had like, the person that took this picture is not like super skilled and so it was really wonky and this had a lot of editing to get it to where this, so you could actually see the person. So that's why it's so narrow there. But so this lady standing next to me and her son, this lady's name is Michu. And Michu is one of the homes that we visited. And the really neat thing was, I didn't share a story in this home at first. We had trained our missionaries and church planners. And what we do is the first day of our training, I tell all the stories. The second day, I encourage them to tell some of the stories. And then the third day, they have to tell all the stories. So this was on the second day. And so before we even walked into this home, I'm like, Tag, you're it. You're, you're telling the story. And the guy tried to explain to me why he couldn't and why it wouldn't work. And I'm like, no, this is exactly why you have to. And so he did tell the story. And not being fluent in Burmese, I'm not really sure how the story went, but I think it was really good. I could see him like moving his hands around at all the right times. And the people were just locked on him. Michu and her husband. But then, after he told the story, and he told the story of the demon-possessed man where Jesus um, heals him, is actually in the book of Luke. We, read, we learned about it a few months back. But anyway, he tells that story. And I can't even remember now the question she asked, but the demon-possessed man is one of my favorite stories because it falls really in line with my um, transformation story. And so I tell it quite a bit. And she asked a question that I was able to answer. And then she asked another question personally about me. And so I actually shared my transformation story with her. And it involves a lot about how Jesus came to me when I was completely broken, out of control, just not a very good human being. And how he completely changed my heart and just drew me closer to him. And so then that sparked a question for her. Well, so you can speak to Jesus? And I said, yeah, yeah. And she goes, so he's still alive? And I said, yes, he is. And let me explain to you how that is. And for the next 45 minutes, we sat in this home where she just fired question after question. And it became so evident that the spirit was working in her life because the, the depth of the question she was asking are more than I get from a lot of people here that have grown up in a church-type culture. But at the end of it, I had to explain to her that at some point you have to make this choice, like you have to put away the idolatry and you have to follow and focus on only Jesus. And she couldn't do it. 
she asked me, uh, part of my story has to do with just my rebellion from my parents. So she asked me if I talked to my parents still. And I was honest with her, with my mom. I have a really great relationship with my dad. It's still not there. And she said, I'm glad that you can do that with your parents. Both my parents are dead. And I don't know how I could ever do this to them because the, this country, Myanmar, is 96% Buddhist. And it's not like in the US where you see churches everywhere and people, it's kind of like an outlier in our culture. There, you literally see Buddhist pagodas everywhere. Like you can't go anywhere without seeing them. Similarly to churches here, but there it's completely embedded in their way of life. Everything, the government, all of society revolves around this. And so to ask somebody to step away from that is literally asking them to forsake their community and their culture and all of those things. And it was just too big of a price to pay. Um, and so I continue, like, I edited this photo just so I could see her well, and I continue to pray for her daily. And I, honestly, I would be grateful if you guys, her name's Michu, so it's kind of easy to remember, I think. But if you guys, if you think of it as God brings her to your mind, pray for her, because I can tell the Spirit's working in her, and I'm just fearful that like that she's gonna be, fall victim to a system that is not of God and that's gonna keep her held in place. And so the reason I shared that with you guys today is because I think it's really fitting for this idea of what we're seeing in Daniel. And it's this idea of how do we live faithfully as kingdom citizens when we're living in human kingdoms. And so just like Michu, where it's really easy for me to see because I'm outside of her culture, she's someone that's living in a kingdom of idolatry. What's harder for me to see is that I'm doing the same thing. And I think that's what's so helpful about the book of Daniel. And so I wanted to just briefly go through that, but uh, kind of go through where we're at in the story before we start with chapter four. But before I do that, there are, I put some sticky notes on all of the tables here and there are some pens and pencils. I just wanted you guys to take a minute, well, kind of while I'm going through, like kind of catching us up and think about some of the idols that are in your life. Um, and actually, let me back up before we do that because I think sometimes that word's unhelpful, idol. So uh, let me hear from a couple of you real quick. What is like the first thing that comes to mind when you hear idol? Yeah, that, that's like a textbook definition for it. That's perfect. I heard someone else. Priority. Priority, yeah, it, kind of the same thing, that something you put in place. Um, I think like so often when we hear that, like we think of like a Buddhist context and we're like, oh yeah, idols, they're like these little figures that you see in everything. And that's what we hear a lot of times in scripture. But our idols today don't come in that form. So what I want you to do is take these sticky notes and just write down you know, one, two, maybe three, but just briefly write down some of the idols that you have in your own life or some of the things that you could see are potential idols in your life. And we're not gonna use this later in the message, so don't worry about that. You're not gonna share these with anybody unless you want to. Like this is just something like an exercise that I want you guys to do. So you have those things firmly planted in your mind as we go through this. Because kind of like what Chris shared last week, Oftentimes when we hear these stories, oftentimes I should say when I hear these stories, 
I often place myself in the place of like last week, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like those, I think of myself in those contexts of like, oh yeah, I could do that. Or man, I don't know if I could do that. But I rarely place myself in the place of Nebuchadnezzar. But just like most of the stories in the Bible, like when you think of the rich man and Lazarus or any of those other things, oftentimes if I really stop and think about it, the way that I am internally probably falls more in line with a Nebuchadnezzar than it does with a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so I think just doing that, calling out some of those idols in our life for us to think about as we go through this would be really helpful. Um, So let me just say a prayer for us real quick as we uh, open up into Daniel. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity today to stand with my body and to be able to share some of your word. God, I pray that that's what would come through today. Lord, help me to be humble in everything that I present. Keep a close guard over my mouth, Lord. Let your word come through. Help us all to see the truth of who you are and what you're doing and help us to understand who we are and how we can live in light of that. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for the opportunity to even be here today because as I'm often reminded with the people I work, many, many, many of your followers do not have the opportunity to gather in the open like this. Lord, I thank you and I praise you and I thank you for all that you're gonna do today. Lord, we love you, amen. All right, so before, we're gonna be talking about Daniel 4 today, but before we jump into that, I kinda wanted to just catch us up to speed, mostly because that helps me frame it, but I'll I'll have you guys jump along with me in this little exercise. So the cool thing about Daniel, and as you start to look at more and more books of the Bible, it is like a microcosm, which is like a really fancy word of like the smaller picture of like the whole narrative of scripture. And so as we're walking through Daniel, we're really getting to see that. And the cool thing about all of these chapters and even Daniel four, is that it also is like a small window into this whole narrative of scripture and the whole story, but it helps bring to light certain aspects of it. And that's exactly what we're gonna see today. And so when you think of Daniel one, like the, the huge thing in that is Daniel and um, his friends and their just their ability to even as young people and even taking taken into exile, their ability to still look to remain faithful and to not go one way or the other, not to completely go with the flow of the culture, not to take the king's food, drink the king's wine, all of those things that they could have done but also not to push back against everything and just completely check out and become like very antagonistic towards the culture. They take this third way, which actually was talked about in Jeremiah and was probably fresh in their minds as they're going into exile, this third way of seeing and being a witness and a presence that actually aids in the flourishing of Babylon so that it's a better place for them being there. And then the second, that moves us into chapter two with this dream of Nebuchadnezzar where he actually sees these, 
the idolatry of the human kingdoms and putting his place in that. And again, where God shows Daniel favor to be able to come in and be the protagonist in that, but not for him. It gives him a platform to turn back and point towards the God that actually orchestrates all of those things and actually gives him the power in that. And it's funny because at the end of that story, you actually see Nebuchadnezzar bowing down and worshiping Daniel because of what his God has done. And then you get to chapter three, which is almost the inverse of that story. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was like, hey, that statue, what a great idea. And so he builds this golden statue. And now he says, hey, like I bowed down to worship Daniel. I want all of you guys to bow down and worship this statue and place me in front of it. And then you get to see, again, these three young men put in the gap where somebody tattled on them. They're brought out in front of the king. The Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they didn't bow down. They didn't worship the statue. And they're again able to be this firm witness for God. But again, they don't take any of that for themselves. And honestly, I think about the like, just the boldness to stand before a king and completely throw out what he's said and they're able to point it back towards God. And the cool thing is they're said, my God can absolutely save me. Like Nebuchadnezzar asked, who will save you from my hand? He said, my God will absolutely save me. But even if he doesn't, I still know that he's the God that's in control of everything. And the cool thing is then you see absolutely, and they actually put this tangible fourth person, this son of God in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to show that it absolutely is God's power that saved them from the hand of the king. And so that's where we find ourselves now, is in Daniel chapter four. And so I love how Chris has been going through this because that's actually exactly how I wanted to do it, where we'll read through the whole scripture and we'll just kind of recap some of the things that kind of go along with this. And so the neat part, even as we open in chapter four, and so if you guys could either grab a Bible, you know, one of the ones that's here, open up your phone. If you brought a Bible, that's awesome. Um, and go to, uh, go to chapter four, because I'm going to be reading through all of this. And some people are really good at oratory listening. I am not one of those people. So it's always helpful for me to have it in front of you. So if it's better for you to just listen, great. But for me, I like to have the Bible in front of me. So if you would turn to Daniel chapter four, and the cool thing is, even if you look at this text, they have a hard time saying where chapter three would end, because I, I, you guys may know this, you probably know this, but the Bible didn't originally come with these preset chapters and verses. It was all just one unified writing for each of the books. And so when they broke this up, they did it where it was most intuitive for chapter four, but really there are a lot of things that kind of lend this into chapter three. So I kind of want to start with the end of chapter three because it helps us see where we're going with chapter four. So this is, I'm going to start in 329 actually, um, chapter three, verse 29, and this is Nebuchadnezzar, or it's being written down what Nebuchadnezzar says. Therefore, I make a decree 
any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And then this is where in our Bibles, chapter four picks up. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So taken from those verses right there, man, it kind of seems like he's getting it. Like you see him, I mean, I don't know about the tearing limb from limb. That's not usually how I like talk about God's commands, but you know, whatever. Um, But then you get the second part where now he's actually writing like it's Nebuchadnezzar in the first person. So if you notice, that's like even a literary shift, which I think is so cool in this book. Like it has not only, um, it doesn't only have like, the Hebrew, Hebrew writing, but it also has Aramaic. In fact, all of this is in Aramaic, which is the language of the Babylonians. And then where you've been getting all these third person accounts, now all of a sudden you have this first person, this is King Nebuchadnezzar. And from what, what he's saying, it seems like he's really starting to get on board and really understanding that there's one God that has power over everything. And I think that's true for where Nebuchadnezzar is at in this part of the story. I mean, we never really get to know for sure because the problem with this culture is they're polytheistic. It's really easy for them to add other gods and continue to worship, which you'll see even later on in this passage. But as we get in, he starts to narrate this thing that's happened to him. So we're going to pick back up now in in, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known for me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in the branches, and all flesh was fed from it. 
So this isn't the most intuitive place to take a break in this part of the story because this is actually right in the middle of his dream. But I kind of want to walk through this with you first before we continue on with the rest of his dream. And so the first thing that I want to say is, like, I just want to want you to start to have this picture. And I actually brought up a photo of this. So Aaron, if you would key this up. Um, it's this idea here is Nebuchadnezzar, and he's at ease, and he's prospering in his palace. And we're going to have this image again, but I wanted to, you guys to get this at first. If you look behind you, you can see just this great city and everything that he's built. But now he has this dream that makes him afraid. And I don't know about you, but I think of being that person in that city, like this has got to be something that's rocking his world to make this guy afraid. And then I think the funny thing is, if you remember, like I said, these books build off of each other and they actually are calling you, I've heard them referred as hyperlinks. Like there are all these phrases that are referring you back to the story, back to other books and also back to other parts of the same book. And so you see this thing, this is very similar to what happened in chapter two. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. What does he do? He calls all of these people. It's the same crew from chapter two. He calls in again. And I've got to imagine these guys, they're like, wait, what? He had a dream? The last time, this didn't go well for us. Like, if you guys remember, they had to tell him the dream. He wasn't going to share it. And if they didn't, they were all going to be sentenced to death. So this is probably pretty anxiety-provoking in these guys. So he calls this whole crew in. But he actually throws them a bone this time, and he gives them the dream. And still, none of them can understand it. They, can't, they, they don't know the interpretation of it. Then he calls Daniel. And so I thought, to me, that struck me as odd. I'm like, that's kind of like they brought in like the third string first in this game. Like he already knows, like he's had this happen before. We don't know how many years are in between this, but you would think he would remember something like that. But Daniel, the only person that was able to help him, that's the last guy that he brings in. And so... I, I thought, like, I wondered about that, and I honestly, like, for me, that made me, it keyed me back to the story. I think that's bringing it back. That's bringing you back to Nebuchadnezzar's continual reliance on the things of this world, on the things that he knows. It, his continued failure to understand the power of the one true God. And then, so he brings in Daniel, and he has him talk about this dream. And so this dream is this idea of this beautiful tree. And I think, I want you to hear some of the language. This tree, that its height reached up to the heaven. So one thing I want you to think of, think back in the story all the way to, like, all the way to the beginning. And what does the idea of a tree bring up for you? Where do you guys think of a tree? Somebody throw it out there. What's that? Life and death. Yeah, life and death. And where is that found? Like, where in the story do we find that? Yeah, in the garden. This is garden imagery. This whole part of this dream is to instantly key you back to the garden. And so what we have here is just like Bethany said, we have this idea of the tree of life. 
all of all flesh, that's the last thing that we read, all flesh was fed from it. So that's what this image that you want to have, that you want to have in your thing. And that's why I wanted to stop here, because the next part starts to unveil some of the breakdown in this tree. And when we think about this reaching all the way to the top of heaven, can anybody remember a story where something's going all the way up to the heavens? the Tower of Babel, exactly. And so it's already starting to let you in now, key you into something that's going wrong with this picture of this tree and what's happening. But it wants you to have both of those images in mind as you continue on. So that's where we're gonna pick back up in chapter four, verse 13. And again, this is Nebuchadnezzar. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, shall tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And so we see this like complete flip in this dream, right? Like it's this whole peaceful tree, everything's fed from it but we've already got this idea that something's not right. And then we start to see this in the second thing. I wish that we had more time because there are so many things that we could describe about the imagery in here, about what it means for the watchers and all of that. But what we're supposed to key in in is there's this voice from heaven that comes down and says to chop down the tree. And the important things to see are that at, at the right time, this idea of the tree changes from being a tree to being a person. And it's actually the mind of a man that's gonna be brought to the idea of a beast. And that, again, is supposed to bring you back to the garden language, this idea of originally men who were placed over the beasts, but then, because of their sin, were exiled from that place and we're actually then struggling against creation. And so those are the things that you start to see as you're reading the imagery in this. Um, and like I said, there's so much more that we could touch on, but those are the things that I want you to really have in mind. This idea of a kingdom, but now we're seeing that there's a flaw, that heaven does not agree with this tree and the kingdom that's been built. And we're gonna find out why in this next chapter, or in this next part of the chapter. So we'll pick up back in, verse, in um, chapter four, verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. 
and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and the fruit, its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. O king, it is a decree from the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So there's a lot of things in here. So the first part you see, um, Nebuchadnezzar has given Daniel the dream and Daniel is really upset and reluctant. And giving Nebuchadnezzar's track record, you can't tell me the dream, I'm gonna kill you all. You don't bow down to the statue, I'm gonna throw you in a furnace. Daniel has to bring him some bad news. And this is not a guy that you typically wanna bring bad news. So we can see why he's hesitant. But he does it in a really diplomatic way. So he's like, oh, I wish this dream was for the people that are against you. And then he explains to him, much like, again, you want to think back to King David and you want to think when the prophet Nathan confronted him where King David was upset after his time with Bathsheba and Nathan told him the story and David was angered by the story and then Nathan stepped in at the right time and said, you are that man. And this is exactly what the imagery that you want to have in this is this whole idea of the tree being cut down and Daniel says, you king, are this tree. And honestly, for all of you, this is what we should be reading. And this is why I had you write down those idols because we're typically, we can think of ourselves as being in the position of Daniel that have these, these messages from God to share with other people. And don't get me wrong, so often God does that. I feel like every day in my life, I'm in both of those positions. But what I try to keep and not look at are the times that I am that man, that I am the one that is steeped in idolatry and has built this kingdom under my own accord. And so that's exactly what Daniel is saying, that this tree, this kingdom 
has been built under Nebuchadnezzar's power and God is going to bring him down to show him, to place him in the position of beasts, to allow him to see who truly rules in the heavens, who truly is in control of this. So then we'll pick back up um, and we actually are going to see where this starts to happen. So verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power and as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So again, a lot of cool imagery in here. And I don't know if you guys have caught on. I know um, Chris brought this up last week, but I've said like the same paragraph three times now. Like they have you doing this over and over and over again. And those are to key you into a couple things. One, it's to remind you that this is important. And it's to bring this like ornate full orb picture of what's going on here. And so you see that throughout scripture. It's actually a really cool literary design that I think we've lost in a lot of way. But to help you guys, I got a visual aid to get in your mind of what this King Nebuchadnezzar has. So this is actually a picture or a painting William Blake did of this idea of Nebuchadnezzar. And so you see like just all the hair and the sinew and then the claws of his hands and feet. And so this is really this idea that now this man who we saw earlier was at the height of power in this huge kingdom, now he's been brought low. And again, it's to bring you back to that same imagery of the garden, of these people that were placed in charge of all of creation, that were given the authority by God to rule, and yet they rejected that and they pushed it away. And they were rejected and they were put into exile. Not unlike the Israelites who are in exile in Babylon currently in this story, and not unlike now Nebuchadnezzar who's been exiled from the world of men and has been placed and made to be like a beast. The very people that the very, I should say, the very creatures that he was made to have authority over. He has now become that because he was, he looking over all of his kingdom, surveying it, took that power into himself. He was the tree. He saw himself as building a kingdom to heaven. And what God had to do was chop him down to show him that his kingdom, everything that he has built is really just this small thing inside of the kingdom of God. And that's exactly how we end this chapter is that very thing. So picking up in verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. You'll notice those are the same phrases that were at the beginning of this chapter, but now there's an addition to it. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me, my counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And so again, we have this same picture from Daniel again and again of this idea of God giving authority to those whom he chooses, but it's not for them. It is for, as in this picture, the beasts, the birds, it's for the flourishing of all of creation. And when people that are given that authority reject that, when they entertain this idea of kingdoms of the world versus God's kingdom, God absolutely has the power to bring them down low. And I think more than that, it's not just this idea of God's judgment, but it's an idea of who God, what God wants for his creation. Um, Chris gave us this illustration last week of a mother hen covering her chicks. And I thought it was really interesting. Like I just listened to that yesterday. I finally listened to the podcast because I was in the kids teaching last Sunday. But I actually, where that's found in um, the book of Matthew, I actually had the same picture uh, in that same chapter. And it was actually this idea of Jesus pronouncing what they call woes or pronouncing making pronouncements against the Pharisees. And he gave you this illustration of, like he flat out says, do what the Pharisees tell you to do, but don't act like they act. And then he explains that. He says they're like people that are cleaning the outside of the cup instead of the inside. They're doing everything on the outside. They're building up their own little kingdoms. And the idea is the Pharisees knew God's law and they kept it. You see that over and over again in the Bible where they say, I've kept all of the commands always. I've never defiled myself. And that's true. That was true. But the problem was they missed the intent. They missed the heart. They were building a kingdom to heaven rather than allowing the kingdom of heaven to flourish around them and being an integral part of it. And so what Jesus said is that they were like whitewashed tombs. They looked beautiful on the outside, but they just contained death on the inside. And to bring this home, I actually had a couple conversations this week that really made me, that stuck in my mind and made me think of this. One, I was actually talking with Tim earlier this week, and this, in the conversation, this idea of idolatry came up, and specifically, how people can make the Bible an idol. And that's kind of a taboo thing to say, like to think of the word of God as an idol. But when I had another conversation that actually fleshed it out more. So I want you to think of this. So later on, I'm talking to a guy 
and he's lamenting the fact that he cannot find a discipleship relationship. He cannot find someone to disciple him that's in his sphere of life that it makes sense to do so. And he said, it feels like Christians today really just use the Bible when they want to. And the thing he was trying to point out is this idea of like pulling out verses and kind of making them to fit what we want. And that's totally a true thing. But when I heard that, it was like a ton of bricks fell on me because I try really hard not to do that. But I definitely see myself a lot of the time picking up the Bible as a way to fulfill God's law, to connect a relationship, to connect in relation with him. And none of those things are bad. Those are absolutely what we're supposed to do. But what I'm trying to do is use the Bible as a tool to get myself to God. If I just do enough in it and I just study enough in it, then I will build that relationship. But what I've come to realize, uh, what really hit me is this isn't a tool for me to use. This is God's tool to use on me, to shape me, to change me into a person that's a display for his kingdom and for his glory. And that's exactly what's happening with King Nebuchadnezzar. You see at the end, his kingdom's restored. He's, it's even built more up because now he understands his place in this. He understands that this isn't by his hands and it's not a tool for him to use, but it's absolutely owned by God. And it's a tool for God to use through him to be a blessing. And this is exactly what Jesus was saying. Everybody, all of these religious leaders in Jesus's time, they got it all right as far as their actions, but they had the direction the wrong way. They said, if I'm good enough, if I fulfill all the laws, then I have to be in relationship with God and I've kept my end of the deal. And what God says is that's the wrong heart. You have to start with a love for him and you obey all the commands as an outward expression of the inward change that Jesus has given each and every one of us here today. And that's what I'm, I'm asking you to do is to really fall down, repent of all of these idols that we've written down, all of the ones that we can think of in our day, turn back to Christ and ask him to change you. If that's not a true reality for you, just like it's not a reality for me too, but you still hear that calling, you see that spirit working in you, I beg you, continue to flesh that out. Seek God. Do open this book because this is a tool. It's just not a tool for you. It's a tool that God wants to use with you to make you into the person that he wants to, you to be. And so as we go to the table, as we do every week, that's what I want us to remember, that Christ came down. We didn't come to him. He came down because he brought God's kingdom back in relationship with us. And he gave of himself, his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could be reunited with him. And he gave us this as a symbol that we can come together as a family every week to remember who God is and what he's done and who we are and how we are supposed to live through this. 